Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is the Open City Podcast, a show about the past, present and future of London. It will feature new stories about the city and fresh perspectives on the challenges and opportunities we face together. Hello, I'm Lara Kinnear. Welcome to this conversation on architecture and climate change. And hello, I'm uh, Armand Nuri. Really nice to be here with you all today. Lara and I like to start off our conversations with a good old fact exchange just to spice things up. So, uh, Lara, what have you got for me? Well, there are many facts I could have chosen for this, but I, I want to start with a very kind of standard one, but I think it might be useful um, to bring some context to this conversation. So, buildings and their construction together account for 36% of global energy use and 39% of energy-related carbon dioxide emissions annually. I like that one a lot. Thank you. I'm definitely going to share that at the dinner table. (laughs) Uh, Do you want the second one, or do you want to hit me with yours next? I'm going to hit you with my one, which is uh, nowhere near as good as yours, but let's see how it goes. Um, So if you could tell me which city in the UK do you think has the lowest CO2 emissions per capita? Hmm. In the UK, okay. Oh, I'm going to go for York. That's an interesting choice, Um, but it's actually the one we're in at the moment. It's London. (gasps) Really? Yes, yes, exactly. Because of the um, the density of the city and our transport system, it actually ranks lowest in terms of the CO2 emissions per capita. Oh, interesting. I don't know why I chose York. I think I was thinking of just a historic city that might... Not, well, yeah, don't know where that was. That thought process is going. Okay, my second one. So did you know that every two months, an urban population equivalent to the size of the city of Paris is added to the globe? No way. Yes way. Wow. <laughs> and I have to throw in another one because I think this one is great. So if we are thinking about a holistic approach to climate change and what the UK needs to do in order to be carbon neutral by 2050. How much of Britain do you think needs to be covered in trees? Am I giving you percentages? Yeah, fine. 60%. 25%. Wow, okay. And we're currently at 13. 
So that sounds like something which is achievable? Potentially achievable, yeah. Should we leave it there or do you want any more to share? I have none more to share, but I'm sure our lovely guests will have plenty to to, to I think they do. So for this episode, we have two fantastic speakers, Clara Bagenal-George, Associate at Elementa Consulting and founder of Letty, and Maria Smith, Director of Sustainability at Borough Hatfield. So, Clara, what is the situation with architecture and climate change? As a built environment professional, um, we all kind of, and as any, anybody on our planet really, we all need to take responsibility for, for climate change and for how our actions influence it. I myself have been for, for a long time involved in climate activism. You know, we, Laura mentioned earlier that carbon emissions from the built environment kind of a about 40% of our emissions in the country. That represents a huge amount, but also as citizens, we are we live in the built environment. And so architecture and the urban environment affects us and affects our lives. And so it's not just the 40% um, that are related to buildings. It's actually, you know, 100% of our carbon emissions really are related to, to our lives. And so I think architecture has such a huge role to play in our climate emergency. Yes, it's definitely more than... Uh, just buildings. Maria, tell us a little bit about your uh, perspective on this topic. Yeah, I mean, so I'm an architect and engineer and I work in the built environment and that makes me complicit in one of our most polluting industries. And I think that's something that we need to own and that needs to be known a little bit more. Laura and Clara have both said we're talking about around 40% of carbon emissions being associated with the built environment. Um, In the UK, that's about 350 megatons of carbon dioxide equivalent. That's a huge, huge number. And so I was just trying to think about today, like, how can we get, like, how can we get, come to terms with that enormous number? So I was looking at it and saying, okay, so it's about 70 million return flights to Sydney, but 70 million is still a really big number. So, okay, the capacity of a Boeing 747 is 416. So say like you and 415 of your closest friends, decide to board a plane and fly back and forth to Sydney, one day there, one day back, every day. We're giving you Christmas Day off, so your mates are making 182 return flights a year. You keep doing that. Horrible business. You're horrible, nasty polluters. But still, it's going to take you over 900 years back and forth to Sydney with 415 of your mates to have emitted as much carbon dioxide as buildings and construction do in just one year. And I just think that's preposterous. And it's not to say that we shouldn't be worried about flying. We absolutely should. I mean, aviation is about 2% of emissions. But the debate about that is sort of much more advanced. I think generally we, we have that conversation within the public realm that, and we don't have it to the same extent about buildings and construction, even though it's so much more of a problem. That is a fantastic way of really bringing to life what that figure is and I think yeah we're all shocked at the thought of those 900 years of flying um and can't imagine it so why it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a pleasant 900 years but (laughs) (laughs) no so the next time we look at a new build in the city we'll be thinking of those 900 years and there are 415 mates flying on that um Boeing 747 scary indeed so what do you think we should do about it? What, what are, how can we start to adjust to, well, not even adjust, we need to do more than adjust, we need to dramatically change it? Yeah, I mean, we have to do so much to this industry to, to bring it in line with planetary limits. And 
This includes stuff like, like stop heating our homes and buildings with gas. We need to refurbish all of our buildings so better insulate them, make them much, much more energy efficient. We need to dramatically reduce our use of concrete and steel. They're some of the worst offenders. Concrete by itself is 7 or 8%. So concrete on its own is like four times as much as all of aviation globally. Concrete's a really huge problem. Um, and we need to make sure any new buildings that we do build are extremely energy efficient and very low carbon. But also we've just got to build fewer new buildings. Um, and that's something that's, I think, quite difficult to, to stomach for, for, me, for many people, for those of us in the industry and those of us outside. We've, we've got to build less. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's also important that we start to acknowledge or or understand how like, uh, how much energy our buildings consume. Uh, we had the kind of VW car scandal a couple of years ago um, about, you know, uh, how much the emissions of, of those cars are. And I think we need to start, even just as occupants of buildings, we need to understand how much energy our buildings are consuming. We need to start asking um, other people in terms of the public buildings how much energy and carbon they're consuming. We need a bit to be literate in this. You know, when, when you buy a house, when you rent a house, yes, there is an EPC rating, but people don't quite understand what that means and that doesn't necessarily reflect reflect reality so I think it's all also about taking it into our own hands as citizens and, and understanding the topic better. I think one one thing that you both just mentioned is the idea of how do we make sure that the knowledge of this is you know start to have more impact and the idea of um, long lifeless fit has actually been around for a long time. Alex Gordon's essay in 1972 wrote about it so why have we had peaks and troughs in, in having that long life loose fit approach? And how can we try and encourage that a bit more in light of much more evidence being available on climate change? I mean, generally, we've known that climate change is a problem for a long time and not done anywhere near enough about it. This is like a, a huge systemic problem um, that, yeah, touches every aspect of society and every industry. You know, we've known... We've, we've known forever. Um, and yes, you know, the built environment industry could have applied more of those principles. So this idea of long life, loose fit is really beautiful because it's, you know, thinking about buildings that you can, uh, that can last you for a long time, but also that you can repair them and you can look after them. And that applies to buildings in the same way that applies to loads of products. Like, you know, you want to have um, you want a phone or a calculator or a washing machine that you can repair, that you can that can be with you for a long period of time, but you're able to look after. But yeah, I mean, we've every industry has this problem, and we have the solutions for every industry, um, and we just need to start implementing them at a huge scale. Just about the, the time that I joined the public sector was when a lot of the local authorities started declaring a climate emergency, and. It's been interesting to see what's taken place since then. And I guess that gap between the political commitment that the local authorities have made and the actual capacity of those authorities to um, deliver on their commitments. For people who are, I guess, outside of that, what's, 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 what's been like for you seeing that? So I, I run an organisation called LETI, the London Energy Transformation Initiative, 
and um, we grappled with this a couple of years ago. So yeah, a couple of years ago when we started, we kind of realised that that policy and regulation wasn't really up to scratch within the built environment sector. Um, and focusing on new buildings, we realised that although the policy was, was moving us in the right direction, it wasn't necessarily moving us in the right direction quick enough. So uh, we we formed this, this voluntary organisation called LETI, the London Energy Transformation Initiative, with the aim to bring together a variety of people from different um, backgrounds to to advise policymakers on what the, the, the new policy should be and regulation should be to get us towards a net zero future. That sounds fantastic. And I just wonder, have you identified a particular, one particular issue within the current system of local governance or local plan making that is a real problem in trying to create these new policies that you would really love to, you know, have a magic wand to fix? I think the first one, I don't want to get too too technical um, here, uh, but I think, the first, I think the first one is about what I was talking about before, about disclosure. Um, so at the moment, um, regulations is based on how how a model performs within a building simulation that doesn't necessarily reflect reality. So it means that the building industry has kind of iterated towards getting low numbers on a computer software rather than rather than getting better at designing low carbon buildings. Um, I'd say that's the kind of first problem with policy. So we really want to shift policy so that we base it on measurable outcomes. And these are really simple metrics. You know, all our energy bills are based on um, kilowatt hours and meter squared. So the amount of energy, electricity you're using in your home, the amount of gas you're using in your home. And if regulation was based on that, um, it'd be much easier to understand where we are in the context of zero carbon. If you can imagine, as the UK, we haven't we have a renewable energy budget. We have a certain amount of renewables that we're generating electricity now, um, like carbon-free electricity now, and we've got a projection towards um, the future of how much renewable energy we'll be generating in 2030 and 2050. So it's actually really kind of easy to think about our net zero future if you think about that renewable energy budget. And as long as everyone meets that budget, we'll be we'll get to zero. But right now. Policy isn't isn't outlined in that way, um, which means that we can't can't be clear about if our new buildings are going to meet the budgets or not. I think that's a really important way to think about it as well, Clara. And that maybe a lot of people don't necessarily that you know, there's this assumption that we just need to make sure that all of the electricity that we use is renewable. But actually, there is there's a budget there as well. We also have to worry about how much energy we use total. The current model is, it's something like, I mean, you'll know better than me, but it's we only about, by 2050, we'll have about 60% of the energy that we use now as a renewable energy budget, right? So like, we can't just sort of use electricity instead of any other fossil fuels and make sure, you know, we also have to use less electricity as well. And that's a big problem for the built environment. So really, we've been talking about major culture shifts that we need to see. Um, Okay, let's talk about two particular categories within this topic, that of use energy and embodied energy. Clara, would you like to tell us a little bit about use energy? Yes, um, of course. So um, use energy or operational energy, as as I like to call it, is is energy that's associated with how you use your building. So anything that moves in your building while you're you're in it. So that's the energy flows um, within your building. So it's your toaster when you make some toast. It's your lights, um, it's the electricity that empowers your computer, your TV. It's also the energy that it takes to heat your home or to produce hot water for your showers. It's all the energy that you use while your building is in operation. 
Great, thank you. And Maria, can you tell us a little bit about embodied energy? I mean, it's embodied carbon that is kind of the big worry at the moment. And we were talking earlier about sort of magic wands and uh, policy changes. But like one of the big problems here is that of those 350 megatons of carbon dioxide that we're emitting, 50 of those are completely unregulated in that they are down to the embodied carbon. So that's the carbon emitted during the construction process itself. So take concrete, for example. So you start, you're in a limestone quarry and you've got your diesel powered excavators and dump trucks and stuff, breaking out the limestone, moving it about. Then this gets crushed and ground by more fossil fueled equipment. And then it's put into the cement kiln And that's where it gets really annoying because not only do we need to use the vast amounts of energy and therefore carbon to reach 1500 degrees, but also the chemical reaction involved in creating clinker, which is cement's active ingredient, by calcinating limestone and clay itself emits carbon dioxide. And then after that, we have the cooling and the shipping and the casting and so on that all require energy and therefore emit carbon dioxide. So before you've even opened your building on day one and started turning on your toasters and your lights and everything, you've already emitted tons and tons of carbon dioxide. And, you know, that's, that's, that's a concrete example. That's, that's, that's a particularly bad one, unfortunately, but almost all the processes involved in construction do require these huge amounts of energy. And much of this can't simply be swapped to clean energy, even if we did have enough renewable energy. So what we're really talking about is a complete reset of the materials we are using to build buildings. Yeah, so, I mean, we, you know, we need to use much, 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 much less concrete. There are a few occasions where maybe it's not possible to use an alternative and there are things that we can do to make concrete much less harmful and that's true sort of to do with substitutes and so on. Um, but we can't, it's impossible to completely decarbonise concrete with our current technologies. So the only way to decarbonise buildings is to use much less concrete. We also need to use much less steel um, and use recycled steel and use recycled um, recycled materials generally. And of course, use timber. So how do we make that change happen? How do we start to encourage those that are specifying those materials that we need to stop using to stop specifying it? How do we move architects away from the use of concrete and steel? And how do we, you know, even before they get to the specification point, Surely we need to be talking about a different form of education in our built environment courses. So, I mean, the good, the good news is that architects and engineers have much more over the last year or two started taking this um, embodied carbon um, problem on board. And we are now starting to sort of much more scrupulously record the embodied carbon, that this, the result from our specifications and starting to try really hard to reduce it. And that's, that's a change that we've really seen, yeah, very recently. And I think that's, that's going to make a big difference. It's changing the kind of awards um, that we're going to be giving buildings. There is a big move and we are going to start to see that take effect in the buildings that we're, we're starting to build from now on. But of course, unless it's legislated, unless it's regulated, then it's going to be really difficult um, to persuade the entire industry to make those changes. So... I think, you know, it's important to say that we as an industry, we're ready to be legislated. But unless we are, then I don't think the changes are going to happen quickly enough. And we're really pleased to see that um, London has has now enacted um, local policy within London where you, you have to carry out whole life cycle assessments. So when you consider operational carbon and embodied carbon together, 
it's called whole life carbon um, or sometimes it's called life cycle assessment and so um, all major developments in London need to carry out whole life carbon assessments from this year um, so that's really fantastic it's something we've been asking for for quite a long time so we're really pleased that that change is made and we hope that that means that we can um, we'll see that in in other local authorities across the UK um, and it actually is enforced within regulation as well as policy. So if we're talking about so much carbon being emitted through the construction process, how much of the conversation should be around reusing and repurposing old buildings? I mean, this should be a major part of the conversation. You know, in I think in, in 10, 15 years' time, all we're gonna be doing is repurposing buildings. You know, we don't have we don't have that much resources yet or left or, or carbon budgets left to make more materials. Um, so we're, it's all going to be about reuse. There's some really nice um, nice examples um, in the last five years of, of where buildings have been reused. Duncan Baker-Brown has authored a, a book a couple of years ago called The Reuse Atlas, and that has loads of interesting examples in, and I'm just going to pick out a few of them. Um, one of them is called the Oslo Urban Mountain, where actually 80% of the materials were kind of stripped down from the from the backbone of the buildings and they were reused within the upgraded building. So all the, the glass facade was reused as internal partitions. Um, a lot of the aluminium was recycled to form, form the new windows. Um, so it's really exciting. It's a really exciting opportunity to actually, I think we're going to see really exciting architecture that, that's reused things in really innovative, innovative ways. Also, Hub 67 was a community centre that was made 100% of bits of waste from the London Olympics and that was a community centre for three years so we've seen lots of really nice examples and I think moving forward we're going to have more and more of that. That's great to hear that we have examples of that happening in London. I guess what would that mean for the industry? I mean we're talking about uh, construction, we're talking about building new buildings, I mean is this is this representing a big shift in in the kinds of architecture and construction that we're used to? I mean it needs to um, and it's like Clara's saying, there are a few really good examples, but they're they're far too few and far between. Um, we need to see the whole industry shift, um, and that's like that's quite difficult on a sort of project management and logistical front. Um, it means that you have to change the order in which you design things. With you can't design things and then find the things that you want to build out of second. You've got to start off with an audit of all of the materials that you have available to you and then design with them. So that's fundamentally a different design process. Um, And, you know, for example, before you demolish a building, if you really have to demolish a building, you need to make an inventory of all of the materials that it's going to yield and then publish that publicly so that people can come and um, say that, yeah, I need those beams. Yes, I can make use of those windows, you know, and take them into another project. So we just have to uh, set up the whole industry and the whole supply chain differently to enable that sort of, yeah, constant, reconfiguration of the resources that we have in order to meet the needs of the community rather than coming up with an idea and then just you know extracting more from the earth and emitting more in order to achieve those designs. And do you both um, get the response from people that you're trying to encourage to embrace this new way of building as a cost thing? Do they come back and say it's going to be more expensive to do it differently or do they try and use that as an excuse? Yeah, I mean, people people care a lot about costs. Um, when we when we talk about net zero carbon buildings, the first questions or the majority of questions are all going to be, does this cost more? Um, I think if we if we first talk about kind of 
more standard um, net zero building where you've got operate whether it's operations or net zero that kind of building and we have been building at that level for the last five years goldsmith street is the largest passive house scheme that recently won quite a lot of awards and it's up in norwich and um that type of building it you know it does meet net zero so and and those we can you know it's it's about between two and ten percent more capital cost um, but the you know the radical change that Marie is talking about, where buildings are a kit of parts that are that are completely hundred percent reused and, and have the circular economy, it's just going to take it's going to take five ten years to develop um, develop the supply chain to make that work. So that will cost quite a lot more in the in the short term, but we need to incentivize that to happen. And these new buildings, which are going to save the planet, what do they look like? How do they differ from the uh, city that we see in front of us now? Well, I've got bad news. I don't think the future is going to look like Blade Runner. Um, Damn, I was I looking forward those... to that. <laughs> I don't think that the, um, yeah, the, the, the vision that maybe a lot of us grew up with of the idea of a futuristic city of being sort of glass and steel and hard and crisp, um, that's just not what it's going to look like, or at least it's not going to look like if that's what we, if, if we succeed in fighting climate change. That's an aesthetic that's based on a modernist design style that is inherently high carbon, that is inherently about um, glass and steel and concrete and those high performance crisp materials. And while, you know, we've grown up with that stuff and we think that those kinds of structures, you know, the sl- slender, elegant stuff and the big open spans, we think they're sexy. And maybe they are, but they are also part of the problem. And I think we need to fall back in love with like softer buildings with smooth edges and thick walls that aren't too tall. Maybe they're like, you know, four to six stories that are built of natural materials like earth and straw and wood and a bit more cuddly and pudgy. And uh, I'd like to see like a kind of body positive movement for buildings. And those will be our buildings of the future. That sounds beautiful. That sounds beautiful. And and I mean, do, have we got any examples of that at the moment in London or in the UK that that people can sort of imagine? There's there's some nice there's a nice example up in Lancashire, the Kirsten Visitor Centre, um, which is Living Building Challenge certified. A, a living building is a concept. Um, it comes from um, Seattle, over in the states, and it's a really nice. I'd say it's the highest um, standard for sustainable buildings. And it's not just about buildings that are low carbon. It's also about buildings that are socially just, that are joyful, that are beautiful. You know, and and what's really important is that we're not just all about carbon. Like I I care about carbon because I care about people like that's why I'm in it um, and so we also do need to make sure that we that this kind of new future that we're imagining works for uh, is socially just as well yeah we I think we need to as an industry just think about what we what we want to see as beautiful for our future great point there and I think we're seeing a shift in terms of terminology you know we've been using sustainability whatever that means for a while now we've definitely seen over the last few years the increase in the use of well-being And I've heard people say that that helps you to imagine it not just in the context of building, but also in terms of uh, human well-being and and also in terms of the city. So it's a much more tangible word to try and um, understand in terms of the future of the climate. And I, I just wondered what you might have to say about the city because we we can see how movements from transition towns to growing communities, they try and piece all the bits together and ensure that collectively 
there is a more sustainable way of living with more sustainable buildings. Would either of you like to share some thoughts on that? What I, what I think is really nice is when you think about the, the, the whole kind of development, how it can shift your lifestyle to be low carbon, how it can shift your lifestyle to have more joy, more community interaction. There's some nice examples in the, the Grow community in Seattle where you have extra pieces in the city in the developments that you can rent out that, that are adaptable you know rather than moving house and moving away from your friends and your neighbors you can rent a room for your son when they need extra space or or when you need to work from home and so I think flexible and adaptability that really enhances both people's quality of life but also the carbon agenda. Yeah, I think another example is um, different kind of housing models. So not necessarily everybody living in that kind of, you know, two and a half bedroom nuclear family home that so much of our kind of built environment is made up of that kind of building. But actually that really propagates everybody having their own couple of cars and having their own washing machines and having their own tents and having their own tools and all of that stuff. And we need to live in a way where we share a lot more. Um, So there's like the Marmalade Lane co-housing project in Cambridge, for example, that allows people to share more of their belongings, informally share childcare, share tools. And we need to battle the kind of consumerism that affects every part of this industry, both sort of literally in the way that we don't consume too much more materials in order to create our buildings, but also our buildings and our cities need to be designed to enable us to live lives that aren't sort of uh, so that we're not slaves to consumerism in our own lifestyles as well. So for those of us who are working in the realm of architecture and, and city making and planning, what can we do as individuals to tackle climate change? I think it's really important to realise um, how much impact and action you can have as an individual. I thought that it was difficult to change policy or difficult to, to, to kind of shift the way, shift what best practice means in the industry that we work in. But it's actually pretty easy. With my experience setting up Letty, it, it was just, you know, you, you think, you realise there might be an issue, you talk to some people about it, you write some blog pieces, you run some events, you know, um, and actually contacting Policy makers is really easy. You know, I just said, oh, look, there's this thing that we need to change. Can we help you change it? And they said, yes. A couple of months later, you've got suddenly 500 people that are working towards the same the same aim. So it's actually, I don't know, I would say work out what you want to change. Talk to people about um, if they're interested and if they agree with you. And then you're away. I think it's, it's an interesting point because you've sort of managed to connect the individual efforts to systemic change. And I think for the conversations that I often have, it's often the case where we think that it's only individual actions that are going to solve this. It's only switching off your lights. It's only uh, not flying, for example, but really is about using our individual, um, our day-to-day lives to try and affect that much more uh, large-scale systemic change as required. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Clara, you say it was, it was easy, but you did work very hard and you are amazing. <laughs> and I just want you to take uh, have, that, have that credit. I mean, I think what you've achieved with Letty has been absolutely incredible. Um, but of course, part of the success is that you hit upon something that a lot of people care about. And you started to talk to people saying, you know, I've got, I, I'm worried about, I'm worried about um, London being not low carbon enough. I'm worried about the performance gap. I'm worried about these things. And other people agree and they worry about it too. And you are able to organise and collectively act to, to affect change. And I think that that's, that's very powerful. And we've seen it recently in the face of 
the COVID crisis with mutual aid groups, for example, where, I mean, I joined my local mutual aid group in Haggerston and it was just absolutely incredible to see how a group of people who'd never met each other before come together to help out their neighbours, you know, getting organised. We set up a helpline, put up posters. We leafleted every household in the borough within like a fortnight. We set up mini food bags and food banks in shops and we did research and shared guidelines on how to help each other safely in this like totally unprecedented time. And it was it was really hard, but it really restored my faith in sort of community and collective action. Um, and I think, you know, the Clara story about Letty and the mutual aid groups are, are really inspiring um, and help us to remember that if we can just get together, we can start to affect real change. Um, it's it's infectious. It's really, it's worth doing. So I would say, yeah, in terms of, to answer your question, I think it's just like get involved. And if there isn't a group that's working on the thing that you're worried about, then start it because somebody else is definitely worried about it too. And then you can work together and start start that movement. And and you don't have to be an expert, you know. I, I started Letty a couple of years out of uni and, and I just said you know, I think this is wrong, who can help? You know, you, you just need passion and you need ambition um, and, and people will really want to work with you because a lot of people care, like we're all humans. Um, and, and so I'd encourage anybody who, who wants to make some change to kind of grab that and, and, and start that process. Totally inspiring to hear you both um, talk about what you've been up to recently and just the power of the can-do attitude and connecting with like-minded people and getting on with it is really fantastic. So let's hope that others will be really inspired by that as well. We've seen in the last few years the, you know, an uprise in activism in the climate field. We've got Architects Declare. Um, we have seen a growth in new policies and different certifications and awards for climate conscious building. Is there anything missing at the minute that you think would help leapfrog us further? So one of the things that um, we've been thinking about is a lot of the awards that you see given to buildings are given to new buildings, fresh, you know, fresh coats of paint. You just walk in on day one, you take some pictures before anybody's moved in, put any of the furniture in and so on. And, and that's the basis of your award. And that's like completely ridiculous. We talked earlier about long life, loose fit. You know, we need to have a nice like stewardship, custodial relationship with our built environment if we're going to look after it for a long period of time. So we're thinking, wouldn't it be great if there was a totally different awards system that instead rewarded that like careful caring of a building over maybe quite a long period of time, maybe decades? And what if that was the thing that was that was awarded instead? And, you know, instead of the award winners necessarily being the architects and engineers who kind of heroically drew sketches. What about the people that like day in, day out, clean this building, that look after it, that make sure that, you know, everything's still working and everything's still safe. I mean, that's that's the real work of making sure that our built environment is genuinely sustainable. That sounds superb. And it's very much in line with the increase in post-occupancy thought. And I, I I, I immediately think of this exhibition that was in the Venice Biennale a couple of years ago where the Irish Architecture Foundation did a fantastic photography exhibition of the photos the architects used of the building and then the photos that the users had of their building. And the, the best one was a library, which, of course, in the architect's image was empty, void of any books, of any people. 
And then the, the library photograph had the trolleys of books all over the place. Books were cascading over the concrete benches. Um, and of course, it just said so much more about the building than the, the architect's one. And that, you know, so I guess one thing that we could try and change is, is the communication of the built environment and how architects can present their work. Because, of course, they do care about what happens after it's inhabited. But maybe we need to put a bit more emphasis on how it is presented in the media as well. It comes back again to a, how maybe architects are educated and um, and how we celebrate our own work within our own industry and how architects talk to each other. And how sometimes the way that architects talk to each other is quite different from the way that architects talk to non-architects. And that's really bizarre. I mean, aren't we all on the same side? And comes back to, you know, the, the thing about um, falling back in love with the chubby buildings and the soft buildings and the, the buildings that are maybe a bit messier and maybe they need repairing and maybe the repair is part of what makes them beautiful. I um, mean, it's just a, a, different, a different way of appreciating beauty in the built environment. Okay, so to round things up, let's think about the ideal world within your sector. What would be your ideal client if they were to come to you and say, this is what we want to do, and you, you were thinking, great, this is the best brief I've had in a long time. This will really allow me to demonstrate the change that can be made in terms of uh, architecture and climate change. Clara? I think it would be a client that is interested in long-term thinking. So a client that wants to drive value, you know, for the next 50 years, for the next 100 years. A client that is is patient, um, willing to take a, a, a few risks, but also is yeah, not afraid to learn from others. Can think about things beyond um, getting something through planning and, 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 the, and, and getting it constructed and, and built. I would say someone that would be willing to kind of yeah think about the long-term um, products so we I like to talk about kind of buildings as material banks so you're actually you're investing in the materials in your building and you're thinking about that that you're a custodian for that material and you're going to take that forward to, to other buildings that you occupy and that means that you start to think about things um, with a different bit of a lens so my dream client would be somebody that comes to me with maybe a vague idea of a problem that needs solving or an ambition that they want to realise, but with a hugely open mind as to how that might be realised. Um, one of the things that architects like to tell themselves is that we're the only profession that solves problems spatially. Um, and that's like mm -hmm. a, maybe supposed to be some sort of an ego boost, but then there is something really beautiful about solving a problem spatially. Um, but of course, that doesn't have to mean building a new building and emitting all of the carbon and causing all of the problems that that entails. There are lots and lots of ways to solve a problem spatially. Um, and that could be reconfiguring existing buildings. That could be moving some chairs around in an existing building. You know, And if my ideal client came to me and said, uh, I want to create a library, because that would also be the ideal thing, because they're really, really great tools for sharing and capitalism hate, hates sharing. So therefore, I love libraries. Um, <laughs> but they may say they want to create a library and they want to create it in a town, but they don't necessarily know where or how or anything. And then we could work together with the community to figure out the best way to realise this without necessarily creating the shiny new building that would have won the architecture award of 10 years ago, but could enable us to win that architecture award of the future which is about that kind of long-term stewardship
Great. I love the fact that you both chose that culture shift scale of clients. We're very ambitious, apparently. <laughs> These clients are going to come to us now, right, Clara? Yep. <laughs> the, I guess, elephant in the room, the one thing we haven't spoken about, the big C word, is how has COVID impacted the agenda of sustainability? So I think the most important thing to recognise about the COVID crisis in terms of COVID and sustainability is that COVID-19 is one of the terrifying faces of the ecological crisis that we are facing. It is not a competing interest for sustainability. It is part of the very same problem. The kind of human activity, the unsustainable land use, unsustainable industries put a huge amount of pressure on ecosystems and created the conditions for this and other pandemics. And too few of us knew that that was coming. And now that we've seen that, we need to learn from it. The worst thing that we can do now is not learn from it and not really seriously take stock about the, of the systems that we've got. We have to take this moment to take stock and learn and rebuild a better economy and a better system because otherwise it's just going to happen again and again and it's going to be worse and nobody wants that. I find it really scary when people say, oh, yeah, yeah, when things get back to normal, we'll do this. And I'm thinking, no. We, we can't get back to normal. It was the normal that created the problem, right? So we, we need to shift how we do things, how we travel, how, how we live our lives so that crisis like this doesn't happen again. This podcast was brought to you by Open City, the creator of London's largest architecture festival, opening up hundreds of buildings to the public each year. Go to openhouselondon.org.uk forward slash appeal to help the charity that's been hit hard by COVID-19. A big thank you to Massive Music for making our podcast track, to our editor Ed Ryman and our illustrator Claudia Alexandrino, to our podcast host Selassie Setifa, Armin Nuri, Lara Kinnear, Merlin Fulcher and our producer Ruby Maynard-Smith and the Open City staff Rhea Martin, Zoe Cave and Sean Millen. This podcast was made possible in part thanks to a gift from the Jeffrey Craven Charitable Trust. Jeffrey took a pioneering interest in renewable energy in his time installing solar panels on the roof of his house decades before they were commonplace, despite the consternation of his peers. We are grateful to him and to advocates of sustainability everywhere who remind us to challenge mainstream wisdom and take action wherever we can to build a better, greener, more equitable world. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.